0: PhotoShelter is the online leader for photography websites. Archive, distribute, and display your photos in a flash-free, responsive website. Try one for free for 14 days at PhotoShelter.com. Get our latest educational guides for free. PhotoShelter.com slash resources. Happy Halloween, everyone. All you photo lovers out there, you are watching I Love Photography Live. This is Alan Murabayashi broadcasting from PhotoShelter World Headquarters here in New York. Uh, and As always, I'm joined by uh, my co-host, Sarah Jacobs, on this special Halloween. Hey, Sarah.
1: Hey, Alan. How are you doing?
0: I sh- I'm doing well. I should let everyone know that you can watch us, our beautiful faces, on youtube.com slash photo or you can download the podcast by searching for I Love Photography on iTunes. Last week, we looked at some fantastic photos uh, from National Geographic by a phot- photographer named Aaron Huey uh, on his work that he did with the Sherpas in Nepal. Aaron contacted us and wanted to give us a little more uh, detail and and clarity on the project. Let me tell you a little bit about Aaron first. Uh, The guy is a a Stanford Knight Fellow. Uh, He's spoken at TEDx events. Um, He's a contributing editor to uh, Harper's Magazine. Uh, He's a National Geographic photographer. Um, And I always used to like to brag how I drove across the country. Um, which, you know, in this day and age is probably not that big a deal. But Aaron actually walked across the country. So, like, who am I? I'm, I'm like a nobody. Uh, but with that, Aaron Huey. What's going on, Aaron? Hey there. Thanks for having me, man. Good to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. We yeah. we had some questions, as you know, in regards to the, the project that you did on the Sherpas. Can you give us a little background on on how uh, you you got the project and, and how you approached uh traveling to Nepal and shooting in kind of arduous conditions?
2: Sure. Yeah, this, was a, this is not my usual gig. I'm not a, a big mountain climber. Um, and this was one of those deals where I got a phone call out of nowhere and my editor asked me if I could leave for Everest essentially the next day or Shoot. in two days or within three days. And so I spent the next three days buying gear, trying to figure out what this was going to entail, and then... Packing and canceling everything I had on my schedule for thirty-five days because the first trip was was a was a thirty-five day trip.
0: How how detailed is the brief from National Geographic that you get?
2: <laughs> uh, well, when you only have a one day heads up, uh, it's it's kind of a fact finding mission. I mean, we had there had just been a big fight on Everest. This was so there was a drama before the April avalanche, the year, the season before, where there was a fight between Westerners and Sherpas. And I think it just refocused the world's attention on on Sherpa climbers and, and people's desire to know who those Sherpa were and what their conditions were like. National Geographic hadn't covered the Sherpa community for 10 or 12 years, I think, and a lot has changed in the last 12 years. So it was really the assignment was really to go see what's going on, find out how people are feeling, and then go beyond the surface of uh, the mountain work into the culture. This was going to be a, a deep dive culture piece.
0: Um, you know, you mentioned that you are not a, a heavy mountain climbing type person, and you know, I was in I was in Iceland earlier in the year, and I was, you know, I had my crampons, and I'm going on a little glacier, which you know isn't that that big a deal. It's not like we're at altitude or anything like that. And the the guide was saying, don't don't you dare step off the path that I'm walking because there could be ice melt under what looks like what is solid, and you could fall 50 feet. I mean, and then I see your photos where you're kind of, you know, 100 feet away from the party, taking a shot uh, of them climbing over a hill, and I'm thinking that that is dangerous stuff. How do, were you were you intimidated by the the environment at all?
2: Yeah, I was intimidated by the really high altitude stuff. I mean, I was with. Two of the best Sherpa climbers in the world. I was with uh, Danuru and Panuru Sherpa. They cumulatively have, I think, 24 Everest summits. Between the two of them. So they they knew how to help me, and I was always I was roped when we were in any place that had crevasse potential. But there were whole other parts that just that didn't have that kind of breakage in the ice, and so I could feel free to move around on the snow. Um, but once you really get locked into the upper parts of these climbs, uh, it's just a ropes course all the way to the summit, whether it's Everest or Ama Dablam, where I shot photos. Um, the Sherpa climbers put these ropes up all the way to the summit, uh, and clients on these expeditions, they just clip in these ascenders and just kind of scoot it up and down and, and essentially just walk behind this mechanical ascender device. Uh, so a lot of those really scary-looking ropes Shots, they were shot from pretty much the traditional lines like that. I mean, I had to be really fast and be able to move back and forth across people and cover multiple distances, you know, with speed while people were climbing to go ahead and behind. But uh, I was always clipped into something when there were death falls possible.
0: So, people are Westerners are going to Nepal, they want to ascend Everest, they're paying. up to $100,000 to do these ascents. The Sherpas are working all throughout the season and making a a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, and that's what a lot of the dispute was about initially?
2: Well, I mean, there are so many levels to this. Uh, it's, It's a complex world because the Sherpa wouldn't want climbers to stop coming or they wouldn't have the money to make. And with that money, they're able to build, uh, you know, tea houses and send their kids to private schools and things like that. So, in the poly terms, they're doing pretty well. You know, they would make three or four, or sometimes five thousand dollars for an ever season, whereas for the same amount of time moving yaks around pastures, you'd be talking hundreds of dollars. So it's like ten times as much money. Um, I think a lot of the issues now that have been raised with the with the Christ, with the avalanche in April, are um, trying to find ways to mitigate like the safety concerns. Like Sherpas are going through really dangerous terrain twenty or thirty times to each Westerner's like one or two times uh-huh. um, to carry the loads. They don't have very good insurance for when they do die, so their families get left stranded um, without a way to send kids to school or take care of themselves. So I think a lot of it's not about uh, trying to stop climbing, it's trying to give more basic human rights to the Sherpa who quite often will want to keep doing this work. They want to provide for their families. It's a, it's a very complex story.
0: You, you've had a history of working with minority groups. Um, I think I saw your Lakota work at an NPPA event um, sometime in the past. Um, and you really kind of immerse yourself in in these cultures. What's what's the motivation for shooting this type of work versus, you know, saying you know what I'm just going to kick it and, and shoot some commercial work and and be a little bit more comfortable.
2: Oh boy, I never got into it for the money. If I if I would have been concerned about that, I would have just yeah shot cars or models or something. But. I think it's just the the history of how my photography started. I started doing deep dives into communities, and that's what made me fall in love with photography. So it was just all these stories are natural continuations of that first story, falling in love with one community in the Georgian Republic like 12 years ago. And Pine Ridge is an example of that that was like seven or eight years of work that carries on even today in a lot of ways. You know, Sherpa was just kind of dropped in my lap, but it fit within... Within that same lineage of story, uh, you know, this was a community that was overcovered but underrepresented, meaning that everybody had seen photos of the Sherpas, their stories about the Sherpas every year, but I think their voice didn't come through very often. And that's one of the things that I, I search out in stories is ways to deal with communities on that level where their voice comes through as unedited as possible.
1: Aaron, there, there's a lot of confusion and misuse around the word Sherpa, um, mm-hmm. and I wondered if you could speak to anything about that, about it being a profession or ethnicity or any of that.
2: That's an interesting thing. Sherpa has actually come to be used as a term, even on the hiking trails, as somebody that carries your stuff, but a Sherpa, the Sherpa is an ethnic group, um, and in fact, the people who carry the really big loads from the lower from the lower mountain towns all the way to Everest Base Camp, they're not even of the Sherpa ethnic group. Um, they're another group like the Tamam or the Rai. They come from the lowlands of Nepal. So this other ethnic group is doing that work. So uh, it's not a general purpose term that we can use to call anybody that carries things. The Sherpa do carry the huge loads. They'll carry you know, 150 pounds on their backs, but only from Everest base camp or whatever the mountain's base camp is uh, to the summit, they'll carry loads up through the technical terrain.
0: I like how you say only. You know, only in the hardest part do they carry the 150 pounds. Yeah, they're, they're really the, the
2: badasses. Sherpa, the Sherpa are pretty well off now, actually, relatively. So that harder work, uh, that's like that pay is less. That's in the lower lands. That now has been pushed off to another ethnic group that doesn't get any coverage of any kind, and they get paid instead of thousands of dollars. You know, they're not risking their lives in avalanches or on rope, you know, on the ropes at, at high altitude. But those guys that are literally breaking their backs, you know, they're only making tens of dollars for the hundreds of dollars Sherpas are making at high altitude. So there are layers and layers to the complexity of of this uh, of this uh, this ladder of uh, labor in the
0: mountains. We have talked a lot at Photo Shelter about the role of social media in photography and a lot in, in the past year about Instagram um, and I, I think objectively you could say that photojournalism and documentary type photography is not as popular on Instagram as say travel photography or food photography or celebrity photography. Mm-hmm. You, you however seem to be bucking the trend. You have over 300,000 people that follow you on on Instagram. Can you tell us a little bit about the approach to social media and how that the, how that has helped you push stories?
2: Yeah sure I mean the, the Sherpa story is a perfect example of, of I think why those numbers got so high and how I use it. Uh, I think I was the first of the National Geographic photographers to do a daily update from an assignment where it was literally Pretty much every day for an entire month in the field and so this was a decision that was made by National Geographic maybe two years ago uh, where they said you know essentially this is we're not gonna keep this material from the public anymore we can't not engage with social media so we're gonna open this up as almost like a photographer's blog and I saw that as an opportunity to report live from the field I think a lot of people are still not using it in that way. People are still just putting stock photography up. But I saw it as a way to get all of this experience out there that nobody ever gets to get in the magazine. The magazine's very filtered. It's like a really specific National Geographic edited story. Um, If I'm putting daily updates up, people can see how I'm feeling, um, what the experience is like to be there shooting, unedited voices of the Sherpa and what they're thinking about, um, you can just get, you can, you can get ten times more material out to the world, and it teases out the story, you know, a year in advance. So people are primed for when that piece comes out in the magazine. At the point that it came out in the magazine, people had seen 60 or 70, maybe even 80 photographs of mine from the road, from hmm. the assignment, shot, shot like on location, uploaded either that day or the next day.
0: So the perennial question for a lot of people is, you know, I feel like I'm chasing likes. I feel like social media is a popularity contest. What are you able to do with three hundred thousand people that you couldn't do if you only had three hundred followers?
2: Oh, that's easy. Well, I think it's it's twofold. It helps the it helps the magazine, it helps the story gain the visibility. Everybody knows this story is going to come out, and they get all these other layers that can't come out in the printed page or even in our digital material. So it helps the actual magazine that I'm working for, and it helps my own brand within the magazine, but then my personal followers that I pull over to my stream, you know, I'm launching a book company in January that I'm going to have a guaranteed audience to sell everything that I make to, or I, you know, let's say I did, I was the first of the photographers at National Geographic to do a flash sale, you know, mm-hmm. just as an experiment, and I I pulled in, I think, uh, in 24 hours doing a flash sale of six-by-six-inch prints. Um, And then if you take it to the level of how can you use that social media and those numbers to do social good, how can you use that to make a difference? Well, after the avalanche in April, um, an editor from Outside Magazine and I, Grayson Schaefer, we got together and replicated that flash sale that I did on my own account. uh, And we did it with, Eleven other photographers that had shot in the Himalayas, and in eight days we raised four hundred and twenty-four thousand dollars. Wow! So that's what that's what we can do with the following. Like, I can use it for my own. I can use it to sell my own books. But more importantly, once you have hundreds of thousands of followers, it becomes, I think, our responsibility to leverage that for social good, really, and for the causes that we all fight for as photojournalists.
0: It, it, it's so interesting. Obviously, the internet has been around for a while, but the ability to talk directly to your audience is so much more powerful than going through the traditional media, where there was a photo editor and an editor in chief who was deciding which of your photos should be displayed to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you have a real connection to to your audience, and you can continue to audience build and figure out what they want.
2: Yeah, but I think it's I think those two things working in concert is what is really important. Like, I don't think we're at a moment where we should say we need to abandon the traditional routers. Like, Mm -hmm. I would never want to abandon that router of National Geographic. That goes to 10 million people, you know, or 70 million people through all its different forms. But the question is, how do we supplement that traditional material and that traditional router with all these other layers that I discover in my personal journey, the other voices that people want to get out there that I know can't get into the magazine, etc., The social media just is going to allow, it's it's allowing us right now to put in 10 times as many voices and layers into these stories. So it's really about both of those paths working at the same time and then merging at publication, you know, or it's, publication is now kind of a thing that weaves in and out of itself. Technically, I guess I was publishing, you know, over a year ago when I first started putting images up on social media. So it's an ongoing dialogue and ongoing publication as opposed to a year of prep and then one paper magazine.
0: Right, right. Before we let you go, why don't you tell us about uh, the next project you're going to be working on?
2: Oh, well, I'm, I'm shooting in Denali National Park for a series National Geographic is doing for 2016, uh, and I'm feeding that live from the field. I won't be back until uh, winter, February, but I'll be doing daily updates from the field in February, and I'm going on a road trip with my four-year-old, uh, and my wife, he's an analog photographer. He shoots a uh, Polaroid-style film on a Fuji Instax. And we're going to do a portrait of the American West over the course of a couple of weeks, starting uh, Saturday.
0: That's awesome. Uh, AaronHuey.com, and tell everyone what your Instagram handle is, too.
2: Oh, mine's hard. It's ArgonautPhoto, A-R-G-O-N-A-U-T-P-H-O-T-O, or you can just look up Aaron Huey.
0: <laughs> I knew Argonaut was in it, I just couldn't remember if it was Argonaut yeah. or Argonaut Photo. So Argonaut Photo. Hey Aaron Huey, thanks so much for joining us today, it's been a pleasure.
2: You bet. thank you guys so much, appreciate thanks, it.
0: Alright, that's Aaron, thanks so much to Aaron for joining us. You know, I love what he says about social media, the, um, using it for advocacy purposes is, is so key. You know, I think that that people who are going on, there's so many questions about. Okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm just chasing the like. Don't chase the like. Zach Arias has a whole talk on, don't chase the like. But if you know what you're going to do with the like, then all of a sudden it becomes more impactful. There's a reason to, to have it there. So, you know, keep doing what you're doing, Aaron. It's fantastic stuff. Uh, some sad news, Sarah. You found a little piece on. Uh, a photographer who influenced one of your favorite photographers
1: yes yes David Armstrong has passed away this week um, on October 25th he was 60 years old and he was battling with liver cancer and um, and he's well known for his very intimate portraits of young men and other artists in his community he was a very close friend with Nan Golden so you can definitely see the influence that they had on each other um, and, yeah, just a really a sad loss, and I got to buy this 615 Jefferson Avenue book. It's his last book that is pretty new, a couple years old, um, of just intimate portraits of men in his home in Bed-Stuy. So you know,
0: if you told me that this was a McGinley photo, I would have believed you.
1: Uh, yeah, and I know. I really I mean, to be
0: influenced there.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Love his stuff. Yeah. Sad to see him go.
0: Really sad, really sad. And of liver cancer. Um, Cancer is just the worst. It's just the worst. It's the worst. We featured uh, Jimmy Nelson probably a dozen shows ago. He has gone out to uh, indigenous cultures all around the world, uh, cultures who he considers to be sort of dying out, um, and taken photos of, of these people. The photos are... I would say they're majestic. I think they're yeah. majestic. Um, and
1: Almost the- theatrical too.
0: Yeah, theatrical in the way that <laughs> yeah, you could see them on a movie poster about this, this tribe. Um, and the book is selling for a lot of money. It's a hundred pounds or over five thousand pounds in a limited edition. The book has been out for a while. It's called uh, Before They Pass and recently he's come under fire from a lot of the indigenous groups who have said they're just not accurate portrayals. Um, And, uh, yeah, so they're saying that it's dismissed as, quote, wrong and just a photographer's fantasy.
1: Right. And I thought it was interesting, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Jimmy clearly is like, no, yeah, this isn't totally accurate. I'm not, you know, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not putting statistics into the book. Mm -hmm. It's just just lovely photographs uh, to show their pride for their... You know their culture.
0: So, what's your what's your take on this? He he's bringing eyeballs to these cultures. Yeah. He's portraying them in what they're saying is not an authentic way, but it's not. It's not. uh, I I wouldn't say it's um, in a hurtful way.
1: Right, uh, right. He's
0: making them look kind of larger than life in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, if you're not getting someone's attention, then you're not, you know, you're not doing anything right. And he's obviously grabbed their attention. He also um, has brought light to this of these cultures that people would have never known about or that we need to know are very small and might, might die out, even though they don't want to say that they are.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I was looking, I, 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 t- I totally agree with you. Um, until I got to this photo of these two Maori people from New Zealand. And the Maori are very closely related because they're Polynesian to Hawaiians. Okay. And the Hawaiian culture, you know, I've seen photos like this, kind of like tourist-type photos, mm-hmm. where they're wearing traditional dr- uh, dress and they they have these very bold poses uh, and strong poses. And then you think about the totality of the culture, the food, the dance, the people, the the different ceremonies and whatnot, and you say, well, this is not re- representative of of the totality of the culture, but I guess if you're going to have one or three photos, you're not going to cover that.
1: Right. Right. He's not a photojournalist. That's, he's not trying to dig in and and document all of it. It's just one shot. How can I make this look beautiful?
0: Yeah. Is yeah.
1: his prerogative. Yeah. I mean, his end quote where he, he says, you know, it's a pity that the Survival International we're ha- that we're having this dispute, we're both trying to save the same thing. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I Just mean, I- slightly different approaches to it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to feel at, at the end. I mean, I think the photos are beautiful. Uh, we we said as much uh, when we first looked at them. We've seen similar photos from other guys like Joey L, who's gone to the Maasai in Africa um, and done similar kind of you know lit photography. That you know you could take lit a lit photo of. A person walking down the street and make them look so much larger than life because life doesn't look like that when you have a rim light and you know your low angle to the ground, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we'll see what happens. I, I like the photos. I like the photos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had. Well, we we talked a lot about the law and copyright this week uh, mm-hmm. over on our blog at photoshelter.com, where incidentally you can find all of the links that we're talking about today. Uh, in part, we talked about all of this stuff because we did a webinar uh, entitled Copyright 101, um, discussing a lot of issues uh, confronting photographers, and one of the pieces that we published this week was Eight Legal Cases Every Photographer Should Know, um, and I just wanted to toot our own horn, no, 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 I just wanted to let people know that it existed because I do think it's it's good information. You know, we... we we posted this, and it uh, was republished on Petapixel, and a few people chimed in to say this article is misleading because this is about U.S. copyright law, not, not international, copyright law. And yeah, that's that's completely true. Um, it's about U.S. copyright law. There is the Berne Convention that where a few nations have come together and said, you know, the copyright here we'll kind of respect here, and, and they have similar views on intellectual property. But there's no such thing as an international copyright, so. You know, if that was the implication that, that we should have investigated international copyright, that doesn't exist. But a couple <laughs> of, of big cases on here, um, Nussensweig versus Philip Uh
1: Yeah, that's huge.
0: That's a huge one. Carry versus Prince with our, our least favorite appropriation <laughs> artist, Richard Prince. <laughs> <laughs> He's
1: oh, Richard Prince. jerk, Brooks. you know. Yep. Um,
0: yep. And so a good article to check out. Eight legal cases every photographer should know.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then speaking of copyright, then I came across uh, this piece on theverge.com, and it's talking about how Netflix sends their series, Orange is the New Black, which is a very popular series, uh, I think in their third season now. They send copies of the show on videotape to the Library of Congress for copyright registration. And they say, well, one of the reasons why is because we're not going to wait for the DVD to be pressed because you have to register it within 30 days of publishing, uh, three months of publishing. Or 90 days, I I can't remember exactly. I got called out on that as well. It's (laughs) it's either 90 days or three months after the time of publishing. You need to register it. So it's not that they're putting them on VHS. They're sending them out on, you know, high quality, broadcast quality Betamax tapes, and they send it to the to the Library of Congress, but I thought that's so interesting. In this world of streaming where they have electronic copyright registration, TV shows and movies have to send videotapes to the Library of Congress.
1: What? What? But when you're copywriting your images, Alan, you're just sending what?
0: Well, you can send in a a DVD um, or you can upload them. Okay. A lot of people are just uploading them because why send a DVD and deal with all of that shipping and whatnot? Yeah. But I guess you know the problem with streaming it is somebody could get that stream. Somebody could hack the Library of Congress server, pull all the Netflix titles from there, and then put them on some torrent server somewhere, and then everybody could. Uh, yep. So I think there are practical reasons um, for all of this to happen, but it just seems very backwards in 2014 that that's the case. <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: Anyway. <laughs> Netflix orange is the new black one one more photo shelter showcase since we're here, huh?
1: Yeah, whoops well, why not? why not?
0: And only because you know I monitor the you, we both monitor the statistics on the blog so we see what's what's trending, what's very popular and this post went out yesterday and it's been very popular. It's the ten things photographers wish they learned in photo school. Yep. And you know reading through this article you, you wrote it I wrote it. Was there anything that you were surprised at that they said?
1: You know, um, not surprised, but I have to say that the sh- most hard-hitting advice that really spoke to me um, was from Ryan Pfluger and he said, it's, it's hard to stay an artist and yet still be proactive, you know, marketing yourself and constantly yeah. selling yourself um, to get work and to have a sustainable business, and yet staying true to the artist that you are, um, I think that I mean I feel like a lot of artists struggle with that um, marketing their work and
0: because marketing almost implies selling out.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In some
0: fashion, right?
1: Yeah, it has a negative. It has a negative connotation, and you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, I thought that was the best from Ryan. I really, I really enjoyed reading that. But I got to talk to a lot of great photographers. Some younger, some more experienced, and been in the field forever, like Amy Vitale. Mm-hmm. Anything that stood out for you, Alan?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the trend of a lot of people, particularly the people who are a little bit older, like Amy and Robert Seal, saying, "I wish I had more business experience," or that's what they should be teaching. Because, and and I know that schools have started to address that. The challenge with teaching business to photographers who are in school for photography, it just doesn't. It doesn't. It's not resonant. It's not a resonant topic because they're not thinking about that. They're trying to make pictures. They're trying to advance their art as mm. much as possible. And then the reality hits them, and the first day they, they graduate, and they have to pay rent all of a sudden, and it's a lot harder. So, Yeah. Ah, it's tough being an artist. It's
1: it tough is. Being an artist.
0: <laughs> I love science fiction uh, movies, and uh, there's one coming out uh, in mid-November called Interstellar. And Interstellar is directed by Christopher Nolan, who directed the Batman movies. Um, and there's a, a video of uh, a cover shoot with the stars of Interstellar, including Matthew McConaughey, Jessica Chastain, Anne Hathaway, and the director, Christopher Nolan. Now, there's nothing remarkable about this video, so I'm not going to... You.
1: Yeah, I was, actually, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to why you put it on the on the sheet this okay, week. Okay,
0: so the setup is this. When, if you do watch the video, and we'll have all the links again on the blog, if you do watch the video, I want you to see how difficult it is to be a movie star because you're in front of the camera, and it's, you know, it's like when you take a family photo, and if the, if the family photo takes more than, like, two minutes you know how you start to get uncomfortable and your face starts to twitch. It's just kind of weird stuff. Like You're not used to being in front of the camera for that long. These people are in front of the camera, and in this case, they're not smiling because, of course, you never smile when you're doing a portrait. That's for a snapshot. (laughs) And the most surprising thing to me is that none of them have bitch resting face.
1: (laughs) That's like a a requirement to be a actor or actress.
0: Totally. They have such (laughs) peaceful. Faces, Matthew McConaughey, all of them. And that wasn't, you know, saying bitch resting face is not a, a gender specific term. They all look very pleasant. <laughs> they all look like they're just having a good time. They just came back from space. They just came back.
1: I know, and they're well, having their hair fussed with, you know, yeah. and like their bangs adjusted and everything. Like, And they're just, yeah, you're right. They're just chilling. I, I thought you were going to comment on the type of camera he was using.
0: Oh, I don't care about that. <laughs> I don't care about that. You know, I, I'm i a total gearhead, and I love talking about cameras, but, you know, the more that... The older that I get and the more that I speak to photographers, the more you realize it doesn't really make a difference anymore. It never it never really did. Either you get the, the, the shot or not. Uh, it is Robert Maxwell um, shooting the stuff, so it's a great photographer. So, again, he could be using a Polaroid and it wouldn't make a difference. There you go. Uh, the New York Times has a really cool piece on old people, but we're not going to call them old people because they're old masters. They're masters of various trades, and these photos are by Eric Madigan Heck. And the thing that stood out to me the most about this set of photos was, first of all, they're all individually great photos of these various people, but how different they all are from Mm. one another. You could have told me that these are all shot by different people, and I would have believed you.
1: Yeah, when I first flipped through this, I did not notice it was by the same person, and I assumed it was a different photographer. The black uh, and whites versus the colors.
0: Yeah, that alone, black and white versus color. He's got window light versus a lit. Uh, he's got an environmental versus a studio mm-hmm. portrait, or you know, at least it's a simulated studio with a black background. They really look different. Yeah. And then some just beautiful like golden hour light here.
1: I mean, he's killing them all. I mean, they're, they're all him. incredible.
0: Roy Haynes, who's an amazing <laughs> jazz drummer who I've heard at Blue Note, uh, 89 years old, Roy Haynes. Guy's been playing since he was like a kid. Oh, wow. Um, really kind of remarkable, but kind of shows the versatility of, of this guy's photography.
1: Absolutely, um, yeah. I think yeah. we can say, what the heck, because
0: that's his name. Eric <laughs> what
1: the heck? I love it. <laughs> Also, the interview. You should read the interviews for this old masters. It's so inspiring to hear these 80-somethings, you know, talk about how they still want to create and that they're still curious. And it's just very inspiring. It's
0: wonderful. You know, 80. I don't want to say 80 is a new whatever because it's not. Still (laughs) old. There's a lot of things that happen when you're 80. Your body really breaks down. Like they say, at like 70, 75, you immediately start losing muscle mass. Like there's very little that you can do about that, which is why really old people look really skinny and, and can be frail. Um, but obviously if you're still out and about and you're walking and you're using your brain um, and you can maintain a quality of life, you can still have a great life and be productive. So yeah, man, I'm all, I'm all for old people.
1: <laughs> I really hope there's no saying 80 is the new whatever. Yeah,
0: I know. Just black, whatever. Eighties, the new eighties, what eighty is? <laughs> exactly. Over on Board Panda, a photographer by the name of Baby Cakes Romero did a, a series of photos um, <laughs> called "I Photograph uh, the Death of Conversation," which I think is brilliant. I photograph people obsessed with their smartphones, and they're just really sad photos. Now, the photos can lie because we're only seeing, obviously, a, a millisecond or hundreds of a second, or one second's worth of exposure of time, and we don't know, you know, this could have been a break in a three-hour dinner. Or maybe they were on their phones the whole time, who knows. Whatever the case is, you just didn't see this before smartphones. You didn't see this scene, like, eight years ago, because it didn't exist. And now you see this all the time.
1: Yeah, I know, man. How many conversations have... (laughs) Where there's a break in the conversation and then you're automatically pulling out your phone.
0: Oh, yeah. When you're, I get in the elevator I, to go two floors and I'm pulling out my phone, yeah. I'm like <laughs> waiting at the crosswalk and I can't wait for three seconds and just like look up. Right. I'm, I'm really trying hard, Sarah, to not pull out my phone the moment I get out on the street because number one, it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, and number two, like you got to look at the world around you.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, so that you can capture it with your phone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was walking through Times Square yesterday on the way to our Photo Plus Expo happy hour, which was at the Social Bar on 48th and 8th. It was so crowded. You know, I avoid Times Square at rush hour because it's just it's insanity. The, the sidewalks are so crazy, and a guy was just totally looking at his phone walking down the street like, oblivious to anyone around him, and I, I kind of just wanted to throw a shoulder into him, to be like, yo, what's up?
1: Yeah, a New York shoulder. Hey, man. <laughs> yeah, Look up.
0: Don't do that, man. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, you found an article on Wired, which has been going around social media a little bit. The article uh, is entitled, The Laborers Who Keep Dick Picks and Beheadings Out of Your Facebook Feed.
1: Um, Most depressing job ever. Most depressing job ever.
0: It is chronicling uh, a firm in Southeast Asia who's hired by a lot of social media firms like Twitter and Facebook to basically go through uh, photos that have been flagged, either automatically flagged because there are detection algorithms that can see like skin or child pornography or that kind of stuff or someone, uh, a user has manually flagged these things. Um, and the piece talks about uh, these laborers who go through and have to look at this stuff all day, just the worst of humanity they, they see. Um, and it's an interesting, it's a fascinating article about photography and how all this stuff that you think is is automated is not. There are actually people who look at it. Um, it's a, interesting from a, a photojournalism standpoint just because they're not allowed to show really anything. Um, everything's sort of implied in these photos. are not even showing faces of the laborers. Um, and then you read the burnout rate of these laborers and realize, like, gosh, what a crappy world we live in.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot of them can't, obviously can't handle a lot of what they're seeing, and they, they quit within three months or so. It's very traumatizing.
0: You know, when the James Foley beheading happened... And that video, the, the video of the beheading as other beheading videos have been available on YouTube or you could find them somewhere. And I made a conscious decision a long time ago because when I was a kid, when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, you know, all this shock video, that's when it was starting, um, like in the early 90s and mid-90s. And you could actually find this stuff kind of, it was all, I, I dare say mainstream, it was, it was readily available if you looked for it. And I looked at that stuff back then, and I was like, you know what? There was a whole series back then called Faces of Death um, that had a compilation of all this kind of weird stuff. And I was like, yeah, I don't know that I want to do this. (laughs) And when the Foley thing came around, I was like, I definitely don't want to do this. Because the one thing you realize as you get older, you can't not remember what you looked at.
2: You
1: can't unsee that. You can't unsee that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, And
0: you just don't want to be in a position, I mean, I'm sure the job pays okay, and if you're in Southeast Asia and unemployment's kind of high and you've got to feed your family, that you have to make choices, I don't know that I would make this choice. I think seeing, um, you know, child molestation and murder and, you know, they, they say in the article, you don't realize how, how long and slow it is to saw someone's head. And that was enough for me. I can't even imagine, like,
1: I know. Even just reading the workers' descriptions of what they've seen was just gut wrenching. Yeah. And it and you know, it makes me look at the social media I use differently and understand why I'm not bombarded with horrible imagery like that. You know, like these terrible videos aren't popping up on my YouTube thank God. feed. But I mean, thank God, but also at the pr- the price that yes. of someone else. It's really sad.
0: Well, and then, you know, with this whole gamergate thing and then trolls and whatnot. I just, I, I don't understand the psychology of someone that feels like they want to do that kind of stuff. No. It's crazy. Like, why Why be so mean? Like, why not just be a nice person? Why <laughs> Why instigate people? Why instigate situations where people are going to be really upset because it gives you a little thrill? Like, go, you know, read a book, man.
1: <laughs> go
0: read a book. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I'm probably going to, now, now I'm probably going to be doxxed and, you know, some people are going to hashtag... Hate Alan and all this kind of that. <laughs> because trolls be trolls. Don't hate. Don't hate, guys. Um, I read a book. Yeah. We've talked about bees before. We have. Why have we talked about bees before?
1: Oh, I'm trying to remember.
0: We're dying out. That happened for a long while. The colony dis- collapse disorder thing that happened.
1: Yeah, that's still going on. Um,
0: and there's always like some hipster Brooklyn beekeeper story popping up somewhere.
1: Local honey farm. local
0: honey, blah, blah, blah. But then here was a pretty interesting article. Uh, Elizabeth Griffin, who's a friend of ours, uh, and she edits for Esquire, among other things. This was done for popularmechanics.com. My grandpa used to get popular mechanics, and I was like, that's kind of a weird. Wow, who would want to read about mechanics? But it's actually a pretty cool magazine
1: into that kind of stuff. And they always have great photos, too. And they
0: have great photos. And yeah. this set of photos was done by a USGS biologist named Sam Droge, Sam Droge. Which I think technically means they're in the public domain because he's a government employee. But don't quote me on that. Go look at the photos and see what the what the copyright situation on him is. But he decided he was going to go out and uh, photograph bees with a macro setting. Um, and let me tell you what, they're amazing.
1: They are amazing. They look like furry little creatures. I mean, I guess that is tiny microscopic fur.
0: <laughs> kind of, sort of, yeah. I, I don't know that they would technically qualify as hair, therefore fur. I don't know what the structure is, because I'm not <laughs> a bee biologist. Okay. Uh, what I will tell you is you find this feed of images of the stuff that he's photographed over on the USGS BIML Flickr feed, and they're as good as any nature photography that I've seen.
1: Yeah, I'll, I was so surprised to learn from this article that there are roughly over 4,000 species of North American bees.
0: Yeah, isn't that crazy?
1: That is crazy.
0: I think of the black bumblebees, and I think of the ones that sting me.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's and like... that,
0: and then there's three thousand nine hundred ninety-eight <laughs> more that I've forgotten in there. Right. Oh, yo, Well, Sarah, you know today is uh, Halloween. Yeah. And wow. Halloween is all about dressing up. And so, as our last feature today, I thought we'd see photos of people dressed up. Oh. But it's not what you think. <laughs> it's not what you think. It's a little a little surprise. It's photographs from a 1950s cross-dressing retreat, just for Halloween. Um, A really, really interesting (laughs) article about a place called Casa Susana. And these guys would go up there uh, on the weekends and dress up as women um, and have their photo taken. And somebody found kind of a treasure trove of these images. And they're being auctioned off and there's going to be a book, I believe. Um, and they're being sold as a single lot because they want to sort of preserve the, the entirety of the collection and the integrity of the collection. But a lot of questions come up when you're looking at these photos because they don't know a whole lot about this. Um, and it's like, did, did these people intend for these photos to be seen by a larger audience? Who are they?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: what are they doing
1: yeah the 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 photos uh definitely they most well this one's posed, but most of them just seem to be they're not obviously these men are not dressing up just to have their photo taken I mean this is a retreat right, where they to go yeah. be themselves and be who they want to be um but I think the whole body of work in general is just a big reminder of how important it is to us as humans to document ourselves and This was an important part of their lives, but they probably, I mean, in the 50s, they had to keep this secret. So it was probably a big deal to have their picture even printed. I wonder who the photographer of the group was and where he was getting the work printed, you know, who was Mm -hmm. seeing these. Um, That's a
0: very good question.
1: You know, yeah.
0: Girls will be girls.
1: (laughs) can't believe you brought that up on Halloween.
0: (laughs) You know, it's like a costume. Yeah, I don't really know much about, cross-dressing, but, you know, I like wearing costumes.
1: I know, and speaking of.
0: Yeah, I know, it's Halloween, and I don't have any costumes yet.
1: Ah, bummer, bummer.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, So we are off in a few hours to Photo Plus Expo once again. Um, I get to interview uh, Joe McNally today, who's a photo shelter and and an amazing photographer.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's super exciting, Alan. I'm
0: looking forward to that.
1: I'm gonna be passing out popcorn in booth four by the over by the Nikon booth. <laughs> come right. by, say hello.
0: Yeah, so if you're in if you're in New York City and you have a pass to Photo Plus, come on by, check us out. Uh, I guess we'll be passing out popcorn all afternoon. Is that the case, Sarah?
1: Yep, till three.
0: Till three o'clock. And then at two forty-five on the uh, there's a stage on the main floor of the expo. Uh join me for half an hour with Joe McNally. Um I have all my questions ready, I just have to print them out. I don't want to read questions anymore off my iPhone. It, no. I, don't look, I don't want to look at the iPhone.
1: No, don't look I don't at want me.
0: people taking photos of me looking at my iPhone.
1: Well, while you're sitting next to Joe McNally.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, wow, that guy is really bored.
1: <laughs> what a jerk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it was a great show today. It was great of Aaron to, to drop by and tell us what he's up to and give us more insight into the Sherpa piece. Awesome I really
1: enjoyed stuff. that. Yeah. Awesome stuff.
0: Uh, So for Sarah Jacobs, this is Alan Murabayashi. Thanks for joining us once again for I Love Photography Live. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.